0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, December 13th. I'm Marco Werman. Torture is in the spotlight again. A European human rights court blasts the CIA's infamous renditions program. And a torture scene in a new film about the raid that killed Osama bin Laden is also stirring debate. We'll hear from a script writer who says Hollywood's becoming
1: more and more nuanced on the topic. You're having producers and and studios that want to present a more sophisticated worldview about what's happening in the Muslim world and, and this war on terror. And so they'll
2: turn to me and say, okay, give us an insight on this. The world is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World torture, or enhanced interrogation as some call it, is back in the news. A fictionalized version of torture features in Catherine Bigelow's new film Zero Dark Thirty, the story of the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. And the debate is heating up over whether torture, like the one depicted in the movie, actually happened. We'll hear more about how Hollywood spins torture in a moment. But first, in real life there is no doubt that torture does happen. And today there is news supporting that. The European Court of Human Rights ruled in favor of a man who claimed he was a victim of extraordinary rendition, torture, and abuse. Khalid El Masri said he was kidnapped in Macedonia and flown to a so-called black site run by the CIA. The BBC's Dominic Kashiani has been following El Masri's case. Uh, Dominic, what did the court rule today?
3: This uh, decision by the European Court of Human Rights today is very significant. It involves the case of a man called Khaled el-Masri. He's a German national of Lebanese origin. And back in 2003, he was crossing the border into Macedonia for what he said was entirely innocent purposes. He was arrested, uh, effectively at the request of the CIA. He was eventually flown from Macedonia to Afghanistan, held in a secret uh, CIA detention facility. And throughout this entire process, he says appalling things happened to him. He said he was stripped, beaten. You know, uh, objects were inserted into his body. I don't want to go into the details. It's pretty grim stuff, mm. to be frank. Mm. But eventually... His argument got through to them that they had actually got the wrong person. And eventually he convinced them he was an innocent man. And at that point, the CIA flew him back. And today, the European Court of Human Rights, they ruled that Macedonia had breached his human rights. And the reason why that's significant is this is the first time that a European state has been found responsible and... uh, to be acted in collusion with the CIA during the allegations of rendition in the years after 9-11. It's a very, very significant judgment today at the court.
0: Right. And that's not the only case of torture and rendition in the news today. The British government agreed to pay more than $3 million today to the family of a Libyan man who says Britain was involved in his rendition back to Tripoli where he was tortured. So remind us of the broad strokes of that story.
3: There are two men from Libya. Uh, Both of them were very, very important opponents of the Colonel Gaddafi regime. This man, Sami al-Sadi, was one of the men who says he was rendered at the request of the Libyans with the help of the UK and the US. He was living in Hong Kong effectively. In hiding with his family, he was forced upon a flight. From there, he ended up in Libya. He spent many years in prison where he said he suffered torture. Now, his case only came to light because of the fall of Gaddafi. As Mm. there was chaos in Tripoli, a human rights organisation went into the secret offices of Gaddafi's spy network. They found paperwork relating to those times. And one of the papers revealed uh, secret telegrams from the CIA to Tripoli referring to Sami al-Sadi's uh, rendition from Hong Kong to Libya. And that was the smoking gun, as it were. This was this was the evidence they said they needed to start bringing an action for rendition involving the US and UK. Right. Now, this battle was expected to go on for some years. But all of a sudden, this case has been settled for uh, about three million US dollars. Right. And that brings this case to an end. The question is, is what's going to happen with another man? There is another Libyan man who's still alleging rendition. He says he's going to fight on with his case. He still wants to see British ministers in court. And it's going to be pretty tricky as things currently stand for the government to avoid that one because he says he doesn't want to settle. The BBC's Dominic Cassiani
0: in London. The CIA has refused reporters' request to comment on the case of Khalid al-Masri. Stories like al-Masri's have become fodder for Hollywood. Many of the stories told over the past decade have mostly been tales of good versus evil. But that's changing at least somewhat, according to Kamran Pasha. He's a Hollywood writer and producer who helped create the series Sleeper Cell in 2005, about an FBI agent assigned to infiltrate a terrorist sleeper cell in Los Angeles. So, Kamran, you're in Hollywood, so you know this is going to be a pretty big weekend for the geopolitical thriller. There's a finale on TV Sunday of Homeland, that popular show that focuses on terrorists infiltrating the U.S. Zero Dark Thirty hits theaters tomorrow. Do you think American filmmakers and producers these days are tackling terrorism and terrorists in a way that's more nuanced than what we saw in the few years after
1: 9/11? No, absolutely. I mean, what we witnessed initially after 9/11 was uh, a very understandable gung-ho good versus evil battle because we'd just been attacked in this horrific fashion and and a lot of people weren't necessarily interested in the United States to hear whatever the point of view of the terrorists was. I mean, we're still on shows like Homeland. It is still the American agents are the heroes. Uh, The terrorists are not the heroes of the show. And Mm. yet at the same time, you're getting to understand the the human journey that brought a lot of these uh, villainous characters on these shows to where they are and their point of view, which is a major transformation from how Hollywood has approached this.
0: Now, in the last 48 hours in the lead-up to Catherine Bigelow's new film, Zero Dark Thirty, which opens tomorrow, uh, there's been a huge debate about torture. Zero Dark Thirty is being criticized in much the same way the series 24 was for suggesting that torture is an effective way to gather intelligence. Do you think the movie is saying, though, that torture
1: works? From what I read about it and my understanding of it is that it's actually the entire movie is a more sophisticated view of the overall search for bin Laden than I think we've gotten in the media. And it has um, my understanding is that it has a much more ambiguous feeling as to the morality of all the things that are done here. How much does Hollywood have an obligation to
0: present a realistic picture of things like this?
1: Well, we should remember that Hollywood first and foremost is a business where're creating entertainment content for people to consume and enjoy, but at the same time, we do have uh, I believe a purpose and an obligation to present information accurately, especially about major world events and conflicts that are happening. You know partly it's just very good filmmaking, very good storytelling you want to understand what is motivating your adversary, and you want to see the complications that arise from moral choices that heroes are making. So I think from a storytelling point of view, we have an obligation. And yes, on a personal moral level, I think we have an obligation to at least be as accurate as possible, purely because I think Americans need to understand it to make good policy decisions. doesn't mean they have to change their opinions about what their long-term political agenda is. It does mean they have to think about the outcomes of their actions. And I think we do have an obligation to show that point of view so that the viewer can make a judgment.
0: Kamran, you're one of the few Muslim screenwriters in Hollywood. What about your your own work? What jobs will you take
1: and not take? Well, you know, as a Muslim, as a practicing Muslim in Hollywood, it's not a lot of us, you know, but uh, I've been faced with this from the very beginning of my career. On that show, Sleeper Cell, I had, there were troubling moments. And I talked about it with the creators of the show where, you know, even as a devout Muslim, I have to present the point of view of people who I think are falsely representing Islam, the terrorists and Al-Qaeda. And I have to present it authentically. And it's very difficult for me sometimes when I'm writing and I'm seeing how they're twisting the Holy Quran and all these scriptures that that mean something to me as a Muslim. But I have to present that point of view because I know that the character thinks that way. Uh, I won't work on a project where I believe the agenda is purely to present some kind of propaganda.
0: Do you find that you often have to kind of turn away projects because you you,
1: you don't agree with what they're trying to portray? No, not really. I mean, I think because we're we're getting to this place of this nuance that we're talking about here. And often I'm approached exactly for that reason is that you're having producers and and studios that want to present a more sophisticated worldview about what's happening in the Muslim world and, and this war on terror. And so they'll turn to me and say, "Okay, give us an insight on this.
0: Hollywood screenwriter Kamran Pasha there. He helped create the series Sleeper Cell in 2005 about an FBI agent assigned to infiltrate a terrorist network in L.A. A U.S. national security challenge of a different sort was presented by North Korea this week. Its rocket launch yesterday drew an instant American condemnation. It's a point of national pride for leader Kim Jong un, but news from the tightly sealed communist state remains as scarce as ever. The fake Kim Jong-un on Twitter quipped yesterday that North Korea proved you can reach any goal if you work hard and never eat. Well, apparently there's a lot of truth to that, as The Guardian's Tanya Brannigan found out. She recently traveled to China's border with North Korea, where she spoke with five defectors.
4: One woman had been so desperate to to get out, having having been out before, that she actually ended up wading across the river uh, in, in the darkness where the waters were coming almost to her neck. She said that despite her hunger and despite the cold and the currents, actually really what she was frightened about was being caught by the guards and and either shot on sight or taken to a prison camp.
0: Why is life so unbearable in North Korea, and why would they take the risk, uh, given how scared they are of getting caught?
4: Most people cross into China not because they're political dissidents, uh, but simply because they're hungry, because they want to feed their families. North Korea has really been unable to feed its people for a long time, And particularly, of course, there was the devastating famine in the 90s. Now, although we aren't seeing those kinds of mass deaths and starvation anymore, there's still a lot of excess mortality. There are people dying younger than there should be. There are people suffering from malnutrition. And while there used to be a public distribution system, that's really broken down. Um, So people are really very reliant on markets, some of which are sort of permitted, some of which are not. So they come into China Uh, to buy goods to take back. Uh, Or in other cases, they actually come into China to work, often as carers or as housekeepers.
0: So these defectors, they actually, some of them go back to North Korea?
4: Yes. I mean, in many cases, they go back because they have families there. And obviously, uh, if the authorities became aware that they'd left, their families would be at risk of retribution.
0: The controls and monitoring of citizens in North Korea, aren't they so tight that officials would know who's missing?
4: People were saying, well, You know, I might overstay my visa, but I can usually sort of pay my way back in. You know, we think of corruption as being a bad thing. But in many ways, in North Korea, it's actually something of a lifesaver.
0: Now, some of these defectors were elderly and able to compare life in North Korea under three successive rulers, uh, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un, the current ruler. What were their most poignant stories about how life there has changed?
4: Well, I think this is what's really striking, because if you look back to the 60s and 70s, It was doing pretty well. Now, that's that's partly, but not only because it had Soviet aid, um, but it was industrialising quite fast, it was quite wealthy, and people said, you know, we had rice every day, we'd have candies when Kim Il-sung's birthday rolled around, we'd get new uniforms. You know, there was this sense that the country was going places and that they really did think it was the best place uh, in the world. And so it's a great shock for them when they're now in an era where there's not enough food, they're eating cornmeal, which they hate, And there is this sense, I think, even within the North, that really the credibility of the regime has been stretched so thinly now.
0: You know, reading your reports, Tanya, uh, there seems to be a disconnect between what North Koreans experience on a daily basis and their view of the homeland. You you write the defectors lament North Korea's bad luck, but never questioned its leadership.
4: Because the North has brought its people up to believe that they are sort of a, a special people in a way, but also that they've been beset by hostility. Technically, the the Korean War never really ended from the North's point of view. There was an armistice, but not a, a full peace treaty. So the North has really fostered this sense of the country being under attack, and that through bad luck and through the hostility of the outside world, really the North sort of only has itself to rely on. It's very striking that people who had lost family members even sort of didn't really think to blame the government or to ask what the government had or hadn't done and still looked up to the government and and so the woman who'd actually sort of fled into China by crossing illegally said, "You know it was only really when I came out and i I started reading all these things about Kim jong il and about his lifestyle and about the the women that he'd had and so forth and and that was the point that I thought well how how could he do this and what sort of person is he and for her, obviously that was a very powerful and, and disillusioning experience because North Korean propaganda has really centered around presenting the image of the leaders as these parent figures who are caring for the children around them, for the people. Whether people have necessarily liked what they're doing or not, there's been a sense that they're sort of doing this for you. And when that is shattered, I think that is a a very powerful and a very painful moment for people.
0: Tanya Branigan, a reporter for The Guardian newspaper, she recently travelled to China's border with North Korea and spent time with five North Koreans who'd fled their homeland. Tanya, really good to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you. Still ahead, pull up by the fire, and we'll tell you the story of Hans Christian Andersen's The Tallow Candle on
2: PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, and this is Another World. Helen Wein, Ennor... Actually, it's not quite another world, though the language was created for one. It's a TV weatherman in New Zealand doing his forecast in Elvish. And no, I can't tell whether it's going to be sunny in Christchurch, so don't ask me. Elvish was the linguistic creation of the novelist J.R.R. Tolkien. His book The Hobbit is getting the three-part Hollywood treatment with part one opening tomorrow. The return of Elvish to the big screen is a reminder of just how inventive fiction writers have been over the years in dreaming up new
5: tongues. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Forget Klingon. Forget Navi and Dothraki set them aside. Those are languages created for the screen, large or small, paid for by producers, created by linguists. Think instead of books, books that sometimes become movies like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, or A Clockwork Orange with its linguistic inventions.
6: There were some sophistos from the TV studios around the corner, <laughs> laughing and gavriting. The Devotchka was smacking away and not caring about the wicked world one bit. NADSAT,
5: Anthony Burgess called it, his thuggish, Russian-inflected slang. And there's much more of those fantastical words in the book than in the movie. This urge to create new words,
7: it starts young. And there's nothing wrong with making things up as a three-year-old in an afternoon with your best friend. Speech is physical, especially at that early stage. We enjoy exercising the way we produce sounds and the way we hear sounds, too. This is Michael Adams, by the way. He's an English professor at
5: Indiana University, and he's the editor of a book on invented fictional languages.
7: You know, even if we're in private making, making things up, maybe I'm giving away too much of myself, you know, in the car or the shower or, or wherever I am, but playing with the sounds of language in the way that I suppose a poet has to think about uh, sound and language. Tolkien needed that, a lot of it. And he needed it long before he created his fantasy world. It all started with the languages for him. I mean, there wasn't any story to begin with. There were just words, words that he could use to escape his immediate surroundings, like the trenches in the First World War. Where to pass the time, he did a lot of language invention and some of the prehistory of the language of Elvish is uh, from those days in the trenches.
5: The novels came decades later. By then, Tolkien had imagined an entire history of his invented languages.
7: He would even leave unexplained things in the languages he was working on because any real language you were reconstructing would have unexplained things in it too. So he was, he was trying to mimic the uh, behavior of natural language very closely. That degree of detail may be unrivaled among novelists, although Michael Adams does
5: have someone up his sleeve. More about that in a minute. First, consider what most language creators do in their novels. They set up thought experiments. Ursula Le Guin did that in her science fiction novel, The Dispossessed. She created the Pravik language, or rather, she says, she created a breakaway society of anarchists who themselves created Pravik.
8: They want to remove from the language... Anything that implies ownership.
5: Any private possession.
8: And so you don't have possessive pronouns.
5: And people's names aren't owned, but designated, so that when someone dies, their name sort of goes back into the pool.
8: And the next person born gets it, so that a name is not given and possessed the way it is here. It's, it's again, an anarchist attempt to, to sort of have things in common.
5: That was the experiment. Could words shape thought? Could a language make people behave in a certain way? It's a linguistic hypothesis much poo-pooed by academic linguists. Not that that worries Le Guin. Here's another thought experiment from China Mieville. His recent novel, Embassy Town, owes a debt to Gulliver's Travels. In it, he creates a language for a group of aliens called the Ariaki. It mimics the language of the Garden of Eden. Where the word is the thing. In other words, there's no difference between, say, an apple and the word for an apple. It's why they can't lie, and it's why if they want to use figurative speech at all, they have to construct a situation which they can then refer to. So without being able to draw on a metaphor...
9: If you wanted to say, oh, I feel, you know, I feel like an angry lion today, you would have had to get a lion and make it angry. Otherwise, you couldn't say it because it didn't exist.
5: Mieville came away from his thought experiment with the view that human language, if it's a fall from grace because it allows us to lie, well... It's quite a good fall, really. Okay, back now to Michael Adams
7: and the writer who may have out-Tolkiened Tolkien. This is a French author called Frédéric Vest. He published a a novel called Ward, which is about a group of people called the Ward who speak a language called Wardwazan. We've been down that road before. But in this uh, experiment, the entire work is written in that language. Ah, haven't been that far down the road. Worst, just does the whole text in an invented language, and then he has a parallel French translation of that text. So if you know French, you can read it in a, in a, in a natural language. But I think he's the first person I know who's tried to do a literary work from start to finish in a language uh, never before known in the world. Tolkien never went that far,
5: though he did write to his publisher that he wished he could have included more of his fictional languages in his novels— Restraint, in this case, was probably wise. And Tolkien remains an inspiration to others.
8: You know, Tolkien, he he has an essay called uh, The Secret Vice.
5: This again is veteran novelist Ursula Le Guin.
8: Which is about inventing languages. It's a charming essay. And he spotted the fact that there just are a bunch of us who love to invent languages as well as to learn them. And some some people, a lot of kids do a certain amount of it, and some people carry it on all their lives. It's like kids who draw maps of imaginary islands, you know. Well, some of us go on doing it till we're 80.
5: And the fruits of that kind of imaginative thinking will be on display at Multiplexes this weekend and beyond. Well, a bit of it at least. A few elvish words. For the world, I'm Patrick Cox. And no, I'm not going to say that. In any of the Elvish
10: languages.
0: That's the voice of J.R.R. Tolkien speaking in the Elvish language of Quenya.
10: And
0: here's that Tolkien poem again set to music. You can hear more on the invented languages of novels and the latest World in Words podcast. Just go to theworld.org. From Middle Earth now to 19th century Europe and our GeoQuiz. We're looking for a Danish city where a researcher recently stumbled across a long-forgotten 19th century fairy tale. The city, the third largest in Denmark, happens to be the place where Hans Christian Andersen grew up. And sure enough, it was Andersen as a teenager who penned this little story about a candle. It's been hidden away in a box for over 150 years. Experts say it offers a glimpse at the creativity that was to emerge in Anderson's later stories like The Ugly Duckling, The Little Mermaid, and The Snow Queen. So can you name the city where one of Hans Christian Andersen's earliest fairy tales was found? We'll have the answer and hear from an Anderson expert who's already read it later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a new study says we're living longer, but not necessarily healthier. And later, a Senegalese immigrant recalls his first job in America.
11: I came here, I'm cutting meat with a machine, very dangerous. You know, lose your focus one second, and that blade will not
2: forgive you. E.R.I.s. The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this
0: is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Across the globe, people are living far longer than they did just a few decades ago, but the quality of those extra years, not always so good. Diabetes, obesity, mental illness, many chronic disorders are on the rise. That's a key finding of a massive new study of health around the world. Professor Alan Lopez was one of the leaders of this effort. He teaches at the University of Queensland in Australia and is currently in London. Uh, So according to your study, Professor Lopez, infant mortality and child malnutrition have gone way down. Infectious diseases are on the decline. Life expectancy has risen more than 10 years since 1970. This all
6: sounds like good news, no? Oh, absolutely. I think any... uh Any progress in global health that can be measured by increased survival for populations is good news. And we have a number of success stories that are resulting from concerted and targeted and correct public policy, particularly vaccination campaigns, uh, malaria uh, prevention campaigns that are targeting main causes of childhood illness. It does not, however, mean that people are uh, leading healthy lives and that we are seeing the full effects of those. And what kind of unhealthy uh, behaviors are you seeing all over the world that are are pretty common from country to country? I think that the most outstanding one is undoubtedly tobacco, where we see a significant increase in the amount of uh, population exposure to tobacco, particularly in poor countries like Vietnam, China and India. Excessive use of alcohol is also a major public health problem worldwide, uh, not just in mortality, but also in mental health conditions.
0: Now, this study is called the Global Burden of Disease 2010, and it really was a global undertaking involving hundreds of scientists around the world, millions
6: of pieces of data. Um, After sifting through it all, what really surprised you? What surprised us was the very dramatic a demographic transition in terms of, sort of survival worldwide, the average age of death has increased dramatically in many regions of the world, except perhaps sub-Saharan Africa. Against this, the other surprise that we saw was that there has been an increase in young adult mortality, particularly ages, say, 15 to 50, mm. uh, where, where the numbers of deaths worldwide has increased by about 50% since 1970. Can you explain why? the two main reasons for increasing uh, young adult mortality are HIV particularly in in sub-saharan africa and particularly in southern africa which has had a dramatic impact up until the last few years, at least before it started to decline. And then also the uh, massive impact of alcohol-related mortality, and that's particularly in uh, countries of the former Soviet Union.
0: Mm. Now, last week, uh, our radio program broadcast a five-part series on the growing problem of cancer in the developing world. What does your study say about the extent to which cancer is a major challenge today and will be even more so in the decades ahead?
6: Oh, I think unquestionably the, the big uh, cancer challenge, the big uh, health issue for cancer in developing countries is going to be lung cancer, particularly among men. Fifty percent of men smoke uh, on average in the developing countries, uh, and that's got to lead to massive increases in lung cancer mortality in the future.
0: Do you think the global health community is really prepared to take on the, this massive burden of noncommunicable diseases?
6: I think we're disorganised. I think we're increasingly understanding that the burden of non-communicable diseases is more and more a global health priority, but I do not think we are organized in the way we were in the 1970s, for example, in, in vaccination campaigns that have been very effective. We are not there with noncommunicable diseases.
0: Professor Alan Lopez with the University of Queensland in Australia. He's also on the faculty of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. He helped lead the study known as the Global Burden of Disease 2010. Professor Lopez, thank you very much. Thank you. We've got a link to that full study, which is being published in The Lancet. And check out our global cancer series, including our video, Land of Tobacco, China's Deadly Addiction. That's all at theworld.org. A much lighter subject is the focus of our geo-quiz today. We asked you to name the Danish city where one of Hans Christian Andersen's earliest fairy tales was found. For the answer, we turned to Aina Askor. He's one of Denmark's leading Hans Christian Andersen experts. And he's already read through the newly rediscovered story called The Tallow Candle.
12: Yeah, I had the opportunity to transcribe the manuscript. So the story is about a candle, bright, white sight, but it's quite dirty on the surface, and the candle, it has this longing to fulfill its purpose in life, and in the end, the candle is lit by a tinderbox, and then it burns. And the idea of the story is quite well-known in Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales, that is, that you have to evaluate people from their inner qualities and not from the outer surface or their appearance. It's quite simple on one hand, and, and it's quite complex on the other.
0: Right. Were you surprised that this story was discovered? I mean, w- one would think that every story that Hans Christian Andersen's ever written w- was known.
12: <laughs> yeah. So it was a great surprise. And it shows that Hans Christian Andersen, in the early stage of his career, was dealing and working with fairy tales in a young age while he was a teenager. That's brand new. And actually, it was discovered here in... Hans Christian Andersen's native city,
0: Odense. Odense is the answer to the geo quiz today, where the story, The Tallow Candle, by Hans Christian Andersen was discovered. Tell me how The Tallow Candle actually begins.
12: It sizzled and fizzled as the flames fired through the cauldron. It was a Tallow Candle's cradle, and out of the warm cradle came a, a flawless candle, solid, shining, white, and slim. It was formed in a way, that may everyone who saw it believe that it was a promise of bright and radiant future, promises that everyone who looked on believed it would really want to keep and fulfill.
0: Wow. Well, let's turn to children's author Gregory Maguire for another take on the tallow candle.
13: Well, all I can say is there is magic laced all through Hans Justin Anderson's life. So the fact that he should still have secrets to reveal to us in this new century doesn't surprise me at all, but it sure does delight me.
0: So here we are, well over 150 years later. What makes uh, his stories so endearing still today?
13: Well, you know, if you just flip through the first sentence of a dozen or so tales, we tend to imagine, oh, yes, he takes the shapes of the grim tales and the old fairy tales, and he just sticks in his own stuff. But no, actually, he's a much more immediate storyteller. He starts, did you hear about? And just the other day when I was walking, and he brings you right in, in the very first sentence, before you know it, you are in a world that is fully inflamed, both with magic and with the sour and bitter reality of human life as it's lived in European society.
0: Well, we just heard uh, Ina Asgore kind of give us a bit of the tallow candle from the, the top of the story. And you're absolutely right. It draws you right in.
13: He could make magic out of any small scrap of tallow (laughs) candle, any little toy that was left over after Christmas or a dead Christmas tree on the heap. Uh, He could find something that was true and lively and vivid and memorable about it. But the other thing is, Hans Christian Andersen was very interested in station. That is, where in the elevator shaft of the class system he might eventually arise to. He was famously unattractive. And so a lot of his stories are about the people on the margins and the characters and the salvages and and the gutters who somehow find their own worth and find that there's something to be appreciated in them. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a little hint or cue of that lifelong concern of his for the true value behind the humble exterior.
0: I'm just wondering, what for you are kind of like the top three read aloud Hans Christian Andersen stories for kids?
13: Well, The Ugly Duckling is perfect for everyone, because unless we are Matt Damon or, or Julia Roberts, we tend to be a little uglier in our own lives than we would like to admit. <laughs> so The Ugly Duckling, which shows the character growing up to be the most beautiful swan in the pond, as it were, uh, is really valid for every child who doesn't yet know his or her own worth and beauty. But I'm a great fan of The Steadfast Tin Soldier mm. and also of The Little Match Girl, even though The Little Match Girl has an unhappy ending. It's both unhappy and transcendent at the same time in a way that only Anderson could manage.
0: Children's author Gregory Maguire, he's written Wicked as well as Matchless, which actually reimagines Hans Christian Anderson's story, The Little Match Girl. Thanks, Gregory.
13: My pleasure. Take care, Michael.
0: Let's take a tour of New York City now through non-American eyes. Ibrahima Diallo is an accredited tour guide in New York. He leads groups around the city, pointing out the sights from open top buses. But Diallo is an immigrant from Senegal, and he has his own personal map of New York, places that are special to him as a newcomer. He gave the world's Alex Galifant his tour, starting where he lives in Brooklyn.
6: Ibrahima
14: Diallo made a couple of extended visits to the city before he moved here for good in 2003. His father worked as a flight attendant for Air Afrique, a now-defunct pan-African airline. His dad's job allowed Diallo to travel at cheap rates,
11: including to New York. I discovered New York uh, first in 2000 from that, and I started to have you know, dreams. I want to leave here, I want to do this and that. Diallo's calendar is chock-a-block with future tours.
14: He works for a variety of companies around the city, including Levy's Unique New York, Today's a free day, so he's showing me his own unique angle on the city. So Ibrahim, when you start a tour usually, do you have like an opening sort of statement?
11: How do you usually begin a tour? I just start and look at them. Hello everyone, how you doing today? And they usually, "Ah, okay, we're good, blah, blah, blah. Then I said, well, this is a tour. It's not a funeral, you can smile. That's how I start the tour.
14: We walk towards the subway, Diallo pointing out sights along the way. That was my
1: barbershop right there.
14: The neighborhood is home to large communities from the Dominican Republic and Bangladesh. But the Ibrahima Diallo tour is on a schedule, so we're on the move.
11: So we are going to Nostrin Avenue and we're going to walk on Fulton Street.
14: Diallo grew up in the Senegalese capital, Dakar. He studied economics in college and worked for a while as a teacher.
11: We are getting off at the next stop, Nostrand Avenue.
14: Now here, Nostran Avenue, is Brooklyn at its most diverse. Shops, restaurants from all over the world, in all kinds of languages. It's also home to the large community mosque where Ibrahim Diallo comes to pray.
11: Yeah, this is where I pray major holidays. It's uh, Masjid Al-Takwa. And he's slightly ashamed
14: to admit that he doesn't come every week. And around the corner, there's another personal landmark. A place that used to be a halal market.
11: Now, this is the very first job that I had where I had to stay alone in a place. Seeing people coming to buy in the grocery, cutting meat. I never cut meat in Africa. I came here, I'm cutting meat with a machine, very dangerous. You know, lose your focus one second and that blade will not forgive you.
13: We
14: head back underground, towards Manhattan. On the train, Diallo offers some trivia.
11: Did you know that the the video of the the song, um, Beat It, was filmed at the Hoy Street station? Well, now you do, next time you get on. (laughs) And that, that was inspired by West Side Story, which is actually the story of the West Side. Uh, which is the neighborhood we now call Hell's Kitchen. That
14: kind of thing, well, it's called. necessary information in Diallo's line of work.
11: I have to know where they film The Avengers. I have to know where they film Men in Black number three, what they show in Sex in the City, because so many people like these shows.
14: Lots of those locations are around here, our next stop, Times Square. This is the heart of any guide's business. It's where the various open top buses all come through. We ride one for a while. Diallo does lots of these tours, but it's not just trivia he's offering. It's, for want of a better word, a connection.
11: In Africa, we have griot. Griot are the people who pass on the stories, the memories of the kingdom. You know, Here, we don't have those griot, but we have these tour guides who put their heart in what they do. Most tour
14: guides work Manhattan, but Diallo's also branched out to other parts of the city, including Coney Island, He'll be leading regular tours there next year as the tourist
11: spot recovers
14: from Hurricane Sandy.
11: Coney Island, when I go there, that's the Atlantic Ocean I'm looking at. And every time I look at the water there, I see my home. I see my place.
14: Three years ago, Diallo married an American, a woman he flirted with on a tour bus. He got his green card that way, although now they're divorcing.
11: If it does not work, it does not work. It doesn't matter where you're from.
14: Diallo is now a permanent legal resident, but for a period before his marriage, he had been an undocumented
11: worker. He'd overstayed his visa. But the, the time they stamp at the airport is not valid anymore. But you're still here. But I wasn't trying to doing something bad in the city or anything. I just trying to make it. You know, you know JFK Airport? That's our Ellis Island. Ibrahima Diallo
14: took me on the subway one more time before the tour of his New York came to an end. We headed uptown to Harlem and little Senegal.
11: And this is the place where I feel like uh, I'm already home. You know, I did not need to buy a plane ticket or to have a, a ride somewhere. I'm just right here back home in Senegal. And the food that I smell is the same that I smell back home. And that's the flavor I'm trying to go grab right now. So I'm going to go have some good chebujen at the restaurant Africa Kine.
14: Tomorrow, he'll be back in Times Square.
0: For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. If you're wondering about Ibrahima Diallo's personal tour highlights, we've mapped them out for you. You can check them out at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Just ahead, a New York tribute to traditional bachata music from the Dominican Republic. But first, a quick note about a story from Italy that caught our attention. It's about soccer and about that tribal feeling many soccer fans get When they cheer their team on, you know what I'm talking about. The singing, the camaraderie, the feeling of belonging to a very large family of like-minded fans. It's something that Arrigo Brovedani was looking forward to last Monday when the team he supports happened to be playing in the city where he was on business. The team is Udinese from the part of Italy near Slovenia. The game was in Genova, on the other side of the boot near France. And when our hero showed up at the stadium for his tribal experience, he was alone. Well, not exactly, alone. There were tens of thousands of fans supporting the other team, but Arrigo was the only Udinese fan in the section reserved for up to 4,000 away fans. Undeterred, Arrigo cheered and shouted for his team all alone in the stands. It was all caught on camera, and the young man has now become a celebrity across Italy. Even the BBC interviewed him last night.
12: Excuse me for my bad English. eh? (laughs) Your English is very good. Uh, Okay, 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 okay. But I, 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 I wasn't alone. I
11: had uh, with me my flag. Okay?
0: <laughs> <laughs> by the way, the home fans booed Arrigo when he entered the stadium. An unfair fight, it seems. But his heroic stance won them over in the end. They invited him for drinks afterwards. And Arigo Brovidani did have the last laugh. Udinese won the game 2-0. Two generations of musicians gathered in New York City recently to pay homage to a traditional style of music known as bachata. The style originated in the northern countryside of the Dominican Republic, and it was in the Dominican Republic where guitarist Edilio Paredes and singer Ramon Cordero started playing bachata over five decades ago. Reporter Bruce Wallace spoke to both musicians and another singer who heard this style of music many years later.
9: Edilio Paredes says his relationship with Ramon Cordero is like that of a finger to a fingernail.
14: We were born in the same place. We were raised together. Since we were kids, we were always together. Together, together, never separated. And we've always understood one another. The most important thing in a partnership is one understanding the other.
9: You can hear that understanding as Paredes's guitar weaves around Cordero's live, plaintive voice.
10: Cuando yo te conocí, me juraste que era mía, y aquel mismo día mi corazón te lo di. Fue algo grande para mí, pues estaba yo en la infancia, mas luego fue una ignorancia. Entregarte a mi cariño, me dejaste como un niño. Condenado a la Morena Rita, condenado
15: a
9: la They've been playing music together for more than 50 years. They grew up near each other in the Dominican Republic's Duarte Province. This song, Condenado a la Distancia, has been in their repertoire since the late 60s
10: the
14: song is about someone who leaves a person behind a woman goes away and leaves someone waiting like a mother who goes out to get something a bit of milk and she never returns she leaves them there a la distancia they say the distance causes one to forget and so
13: you stay there waiting
9: the song has one of bachata's main ingredients, amargue, a kind of bittersweet melancholy, a recognition of life's sadness. Amargue runs through bachata's songs and its history. Through the 70s, the music was marginalized, associated with poor campesinos, and kept off most radio stations. In those years, bachata was,
14: well, it wasn't always shunned, but they treated it as if it was low class.
15: It was like vulgar, poor people music, and now everybody sings it, and now everybody enjoys it. And uh, even now, people that say that they don't do because they are too fine for it, still do it.
9: André Velos shared the stage with Paredes and Cordero in New York. She's in her 20s and lives in the Bronx now. She grew up in the Dominican countryside, not far from where the two bachata elder statesmen are from. Music by them and other classic bachateros played around the house while she was growing up.
15: And that is what uh, the maids used to put all day. Bachata, bachata, old style, old school, very cool. And I remember that everybody was just like, oh, stop listening to that. That's not for ladies. Good Before I go on singing, um, I think it's important uh, to say thank you uh, to people like Edilio Paredes. <laughs> Dura, Dilio, te toca bueno. Si me mata, no me muero de algo. Yo quiero que llueva, que haya mucha agua, porque yo no quiero que se manche el suelo.
9: Veloso says that she always has to fight against that not for ladies stereotype.
15: It's just very uh, disappointing and frustrating. And I really hope that very soon more places will open for uh, more women, not only in bachata, but in Latin music in general. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to be part of that. Yo no que
9: Ramon Cordero returned to close the night with another helping of Amarque, the song Adios. Life is so unjust, one of the lyrics goes. How cruel it has been to me. It has condemned me to live without the sweet warmth of your love. Adios.
10: La vida que gusta es que ha
9: sido con for the world. I'm Bruce Wallace in New York.
10: Me a de tu Adiós, adiós. que buena suerte corazón. Adiós, adiós,
0: Terrific music tradition, Bachata. If you want to hear more of it, come to theworld.org. Or follow us on SoundCloud. And speaking of social media, I tweet at Marco Werman. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I thank you for listening.
10: Tengo adiós No me voy con el
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs... By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can.